Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. On today's episode, I talk with director Todd Field, who has received justifiably rave reviews for Tar, his first feature film since Little Children in 2006. Tar is a riveting character study of a composer in personal and professional freefall, with a career best performance by Kate Blanchett. Todd and I talked about his collaboration with Blanchett, as well as writing an original screenplay during a pandemic, immersing himself in the world of classical music, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. To start out, uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about the origins of the movie and the writing, because I read that you wrote the script during the pandemic, and I'm curious how that informed the script and ultimately the film. Wow. Well, I think it. I think it. It's it's funny that you asked that you say that because, or you asked that because I was just um, having this conversation with with uh, Serena Rathbun, my 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 wife um, today. I said, you know, I don't I don't think I would have written the script had had the world not just locked down. Uh, there was a, 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 for all kinds of reasons, from a practical standpoint, all of us, you know, we're trying to figure out how we were going to survive and who would wear the hazmat and who would go to the market. And, but we were all on top of each other, you know, um, trying to figure out um, if we were going to get out the other side of it. So yeah, it's a very particular kind of headspace to be in coming to the to your to your work table every day for sure you know this was an original script i mean the other films of yours i've seen are adaptations what's different about that process and what's the same well i think what's different about it is um for one thing if you're if you're writing for someone and they're they're having you write there's a level of uh reasonable security in that there's underlying material so that everybody kind of has a point of reference that's in terms of the sort of uh you know the um the tension between form and expression uh, with with a, the the writer and the in, in this case uh, the studio that was highly unusual that that was not the sort of dynamic here you know uh, I was given my head and told me I you know told that I could write anything that I wanted I, no one has said that to me in a very very long time um, so that that was different in terms of actually sitting down and and going about your work it, you know. Um, that's very much the same, other than the fact that, that you do have this, you know, sense of delight in having the freedom that your fiction writer friends have that you normally don't, you know. And does the freedom that comes with somebody saying to you, write whatever you want, is there anything about that that is challenging? I mean, you know, to me, it would seem like in a way going into writing something with no limitations could in some ways be daunting or give you too many choices or how do you deal with that? Indeed. Yes, I, I agree with that. And, um, and I, that's why I said to the studio at the time, if I turn this in and, and you don't like it or you hate it, which you, you, you well may, I'll do something else for you to, so that you feel like you, you got your, you know, your money's worth. That was, that was sort of the, the pair on my shoulder, which is like, okay, I, uh, they'll, they'll be okay no matter what, you know, I'm not going to stick them with this, with this script because I, you know, I truthfully thought that they were they were going to look at me and and say, you know, what what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, we're not making this movie. You know, I was I was shocked when uh, when they didn't say that. Well, where did the idea come from? I mean, was this world uh, a world you were familiar with that this world of classical music and conducting, or was it something that you had to do a lot of research into? What what were the kind of origins of just the core idea and this core character? Well, the character had been someone I'd been thinking about for for a long, many many years, and a character sort of working within some kind of higher you know hierarchical um, structure, specifically having to do with 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 the arts, maybe not the fine arts, but um, certainly the business of entertaining. 
in terms of putting her in this milieu specifically, no, I had a huge, uh, there was a huge learning curve there. You know, my background was, is not in concert music or classical music. And so I just grabbed the first thing that was sort of handy, which was this book for the love of music, um, written by the great John Malcheri, who had been a, you know, had been mentored by Leonard Bernstein. And that book really activated something very, very quickly. And I thought, ah, okay. Um, um, this is this is great, but I need more. And I called up Mike Noblock and Natalie Hayden at Universal Music, and I said, I, I you know, I don't want to do a, um, I want to be very careful that I'm not going to, I'm a civilian here, and you were not making a documentary or anything, but it's important that she knows her onions. It's it's important that that we know she knows her onions, not that we know anything uh, about uh, about them, you know. And I need to talk to someone about that. And they said, well, there's this. Uh, there's a guy we know named John Malcheri. And I said, wow, wow, you know, I just finished reading his book. So um, John was locked down in New York City. He wasn't on tour because, of course, he's a conductor, you know, um, and he's he lives out of a bag, as most conductors do. And um, he also teaches at Yale and other places. So um, he agreed to sort of uh, become my my teacher for about uh, four weeks. And, and that was incredible time, incredible learning experience. And uh, it was a a, a very lucky start uh, for for starting on this material. Now you mentioned, I believe you actually wrote this for Kate Blanchett. What kind of initial conversations did you have with her, and did you have any kind of backup plan if she had said no? No, I had no backup plan. No, I mean it. it I you know I'd met Kate ten years ago, um, and we were discussing collaborating on another project, and I knew coming out of that meeting that I had just been in conversation with somebody that had one of the great, great, uh, brains I'd ever met. And with someone that I, I was really, really, um, desperate to, to, to be able to collaborate with. So no, I knew, it, I knew it was Kate. You've talked about this elsewhere, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I'm just curious, like in terms of the rigor of her preparation, I mean, how long was she preparing for this and what kinds of conversations did you have with her before you ever got to shooting about, you know, how she was going to inhabit this woman. Well, we talked, we didn't, you didn't talk about a lot of technical things. Those were manifest and, and fairly, you know, uh, clear. Um, you know, um, she, she was going to have to learn to speak German. She was going to have to learn to play the piano. She was going to have to learn to, you know, stick technique. She was going to have to learn, uh, she was going to have to play an American. Um, she was going to have to do all of these things. And I'm, um, no one needs to tell uh, an actor uh, of of that caliber the obvious, right? And so she, we did talk about the how and the who, um, and who made sense given that we were all locked down. I mean, this was the very beginning of the lockdown. I think it's easy for us to to forget because we want to, but at the beginning of that lockdown, we were all alone in rooms. So she had to do much of this via the same way we're doing this interview right now, you know, during via Zoom or Skype or however, you know, so she, she started doing, um, uh, you know, started first started doing st basic stick technique with Natalie Marie Beale, who, who was a friend of hers, um, while she was working on two other films. And she started taking piano lessons with someone in Budapest when she was there. And, and she just, she went about, you know, she went about her work, about things she needed to do, the things that we would talk about when she came back from from a shooting day for for about nine months before we were on the ground together in in Berlin, where we're much more about who the character was, what part of her biography was true, and what part of it was utter fiction, and that things that she had 
uh, concocted, you know, stories that she'd told so many times that she began to believe them herself, you know, um, uh, what her path was from, from a young person to a, uh, you know, to, to, uh, someone that's turning middle age, um, how her viewpoint had changed, how the corrupting nature of, um, power is and things like that. And then, and then it was just like, you know, practical things in terms of both of us were very, you know, impressionable and very easily impressed about concert music because there's so much world history wrapped into it once you start to dig. And there's so many connections to a really deep story and story that has shaped uh, the previous century that are very interesting, you know, to sort of delve into. So we we were both like, we were like people who had discovered, you know, European art cinema for the first time, you know, um, and started talking over each other and saying, well, what about Gurgiev? You know, he did this thing and blah, 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 blah. You know, we, we, we would have these, we'd have these very animated conversations um, that were, you know, about very, you know, somewhat arcane stuff often, you know. Um, so that, that was a, most of the preparation. The other part of it had to do with, you know, practical matters like casting and um, approach and uh, talking about, you know, who might be right for the different parts and things like that. Yeah, well, that's, you know, something else about this movie is all of the performances in it are fantastic. I mean, everybody talks a lot about Blanchette and obviously she's incredible, but she's surrounded by this great ensemble. And I'm curious how you create an environment to get the best out of your actors. Did you have a rehearsal period on this movie? And if so, what did that consist of? Well, we did. I mean, we rehearsed for about three weeks before production. Um, and that rehearsal uh, was sort of robbed from Peter to pay Paul because our window for uh, having access to be able to play with the Dresden Philharmonic was unfortunately at the top of the schedule. So we had to put all of our energies toward being prepared for that so we would have acting rehearsals for those three weeks but we'd also were were doing musical rehearsals with accompaniments and in small groups like with nina and with with sophie and with kate and with natalie murray beale you know um and with an accompanist and and trying to get ready so that when we arrived in dresden we were ready to go we had to sort of share that time uh with the acting rehearsals and um so three weeks, you know, can be a luxury, but in this case, it it was really about a week and a half because the other part of it was all about the music. And how does the fact that this is such a strong character study built around such a specific character and such a powerful performance affect the way you approach the visual style? I mean, what were your guiding principles in terms of things like camera movement and composition and editing, and how were those informed by Blanchett's performance? Well, I had some very, I had simple rules, you know, again, this, uh, yes, it was an original script. And when you write an original script, I mean, I feel this way whenever I, I work on material, but when you write an original script, you kind of, you're seeing the movie, you know, um, doesn't mean that it won't change, but, but you kind of have a picture in your, in your mind in terms of, at least in terms of the feeling of it, you know, and once Kate said that she, that she would do this, the decision was pretty clear, which is that she has to drive the story. You know, that char the character has to drive the story. The, and the longer tightrope we can put her on without a net editorially or with coverage or anything like that, the more potential for investment. You know, so essentially, with the exception of, of the orchestra scenes, which were inspired by rehearsal footage that, that we had all seen, that Kate and I had seen, and that, that Florian and I watched together, that, are, you know, are, are what rehearsals are, which is you have maybe one camera or two cameras and a, a, a boom person and a sound recordist, and that's about it, you know. 
you're not you're not doing big swooping camera moves or crane moves or anything fancy during a rehearsal process that you roll up your sleeves and it, it's fairly pedestrian you know but to get that because we had so little time with the with the orchestra all of that of course had to had, we had to board every single angle and we had we had to do you know the first day we did like 96 setups which is crazy but we had to because we only had little time with them but aside from that and aside from say the the longer scene in Juilliard which um which which we worked for a very very long time on most of the time it was about coming in and spending the first hour alone with the actors rehearsing looking at looking at it seeing what felt right and then finding an angle and saying okay this is it you know and we're going to work within this angle but that was really dictated by what the script was and and who this character is and the fact that um somebody as remarkable as Kate Blanchett can make that work you know in in that way it's a very you know there's some the camera moves when it needs to move but for in large part it's a very theatrical experience and by that I mean almost like a stage experience and how does costume design play into all this what kinds of conversations did you have with the costume designer and what kinds of conversations did she have with the actors and how did that all kind of add another dimension to the characterizations in the movie well that was being a diagler is a absolutely um you know, extraordinary uh, collaborator. You know, I was very, I was really blessed that way. You know, and and and, and before I talk about her, I mean, I, I just just one note because I've, I've sort of glossed over this and talking about the about the camera. I I, I just want to say something about Florian Hofmeister because I think that he has one of the most exquisite eyes in terms of light, um, one of the most delicate touches as an artist. Um, and and was absolutely fearless about the approach for this film. You know, there's been a lot made about this sort of long ten minute one shot uh, scene, this Juilliard scene. That took a lot of a lot of conversation and a lot of work to get to what that was. Um, and he was indefatigable in terms of his courage with that and many many other things. Um, I feel really really lucky that that to have had the opportunity to collaborate with him. And I feel that, and I feel that way about, uh, about Bina. Bina is someone, you know, whose work I knew from, you know, all about my mother and Volver and her work with, with, with Pedro Almodovar. Um, and when I asked her to do this, I had no idea that she and Kate had this long, very rich history with each other. Um, so when her name came up, uh, you know, Kate was, you know, saying, yes, you have to, you, you have to work with her. You know, she's incredible. Um, and, and she is, you know, um, you have a, a very, this is a contemporary film. And I think a lot of times, you know, we get rewarded for, we get rewarded for doing big things. You know, uh, when you're in the pretend business, when you're a kid, you, when you dress up as something, you dress up as something, you know. Um, so when you look at costume design, a lot of times I think it's period costume that gets rewarded or a fantasy costume that gets rewarded because because there are easy things to be impressed by and, and you can kind of see the work, you know. But I think that one of the most difficult things is to not get caught in contemporary design, you know. And contemporary design is not shopping, you know. Contemporary design is getting inside a character and working from the inside out having the ability to really ask very, very tiny questions of a character. And, and that goes for what the clothes do, what they don't do, and, what, and, and basically how we costume ourselves in a contemporary society. Because we, we change how we dress the same way we change how we behave based on where we're going and who we're dealing with. For instance, 
you know, when she's rehearsing with this orchestra, she doesn't look like that at any other point in the film. That was a very considered choice on Bina's part, you know, and you look at her shirt, it's like it's wrinkled, her sleeves are up, she's sweating, her pits are sweating, you know, she's in these horrible pants, you know, she's like, she's there to work. And I could go through the entire film with you if we had time, which we don't, and just sort of talk about that a bit. But, you know, aside from that, um, one of the great things about Bina, um, and again, I would say this about Florian and, 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 and others, um, is people not being afraid to work outside their discipline. You know, like Bina would, you know, uh, lived in my neighborhood in Berlin. So often we would like, we kind of had a standing, you know, dinner uh, once a week. And she has a very holistic way of looking at a, at a film. Her ideas informed so much of the film from the whole Taylor sequence at the beginning. That's really all from Bina to... Um, to the park that we shot in ultimately, you know, she kind of gently push you and lead you places, you know, um, without ever asking for, uh, for the credit that she deserves. So, um, I feel very, very lucky having worked with her and I, I, I hope to have the opportunity again. You brought up the cinematography a little bit ago and that leads me to another question. I read somewhere that Aeroflex built custom lenses for you for this movie. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, what exactly, these lenses were and what the process was that led you to those and that being what you needed to shoot this movie? Well, we started, you know, again, like, you know, Florian and I started talking very, very early, um, like probably five months before uh, production. And one of the things that we did, we had a, we had an early shoot in New York and uh, Florian couldn't be there for that, but we used that as an opportunity to kind of do some R and D and we tested everything from that moment we tested different camera formats we tested all manner of lenses with uh with darren lou and minka farthing uh, cohen uh, two different dps and and then we projected them all that film um and and then flooring was remote looking at that stuff so by the time i got into berlin there was one particular lens that that florian and i were really responding to but it, it's not a practical piece of glass uh it's an old piece of glass and it, it, it it's too idiosyncratic to say the least with huge depth of field issues so but we like the quality of it uh a lot so we spent a good deal of time trying to figure out how, how to get there and ultimately um florian had a very specific uh process with with uh christoph hosten who's the the chief uh, lens tech at, at area berlin um and so he sort of chased this this feeling we were after and he kind of built it upon an area signature uh prime architecture but he did it by changing out all the, the elements so it was a utterly differently configured lens um and and he built us a whole set of them so it, it was months of work to, to finally get those lenses uh, together, but but the end result we were we were both extremely happy with. I mean, the other thing that Florian um, did, which is kind of remarkable, is you know he talked about you know we we talk so much about the end of emulsion, you know, and the end of film, and um, if you have the luxury as a line item to shoot film, um, of course you're you're going to shoot film, but you know this is not all, often the case. So where do we go? you know, where, where do we have a point of reference, you know? And if you think about Aeroflex as being the longest standing uh, motion picture company uh, in, in terms of uh, making technical equipment, which it is, and that legacy, the thing about a company like that is that they're, you know, for all intents and purposes, we have a lot of really dynamic and, and, and you know, 
remarkable companies that are making di you know forms of digital capture but Aerie was really the first company to do that and um and their color science department were people that all came out of the lab so their photochemical color references are trailblazing to say the least and those people that that were involved with that are still working at Aeroflex. So Florian was saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if if we had some kind of base uh, understanding of like say 50 daylight, 200 tungsten, you know, something that could be could be dealt with in the front end as opposed to always in the grade. You know, you would still have the ability to grade as you would if 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 you shot film, but to have a mode of capture that was understandable based upon a pre-subscribed set of circumstances in the camera itself. And um, so this Aeroflex has sort of built this, based on these conversations, this Airy Print Emulsion System, or APES is the acronym. Um, and now they're building that into all of their new camera systems. And that was something that really was born out of conversations with Aeroflex and, and with Florian Hofmeister. And, and I, I think that'll have a huge impact in terms of giving cinematographers uh, their creative rights back that have been taken from them, um, you know, since since... Uh, film became a, a fleeting notion. Well, switching over to the post process, so you're editing this during a pandemic. Are you and your editor together? Are you working remotely? What's that relationship like? No, we we work together. I mean, um, I was supposed to be editing with with uh, Monica Willie um, in Vienna. We both have uh, young uh, children at home, and we, we kind of made a decision that only one of us should suffer. You know, but. We started to edit in January of this year, and uh, we'd wrapped in December. And in January, there was another lockdown um, in both Austria and in London. And London was where we were supposed to cut. So we made a decision that we would go, you know, someplace very remote. So we bubbled up uh, about 45 minutes outside of Edinburgh, Scotland. And we were in a uh, 15th century uh, sort of former nunnery. And, and there was nothing to do other than walk the hedgerows, you know, every day and, and edit. So we did. We, we edited seven day weeks. Uh, and um, it was a very, very intense editorial process, as you can imagine, because there wasn't a lot for us to do. Now there was drive on that side of the road. So we didn't have a, a car and, you know, our, our food was delivered by the supermarket. And it was a uh, it was a very, you know, no pun intended, a very hermetic uh, sort of process that we had. And what were some of the discoveries you made in the editing? Were there surprises or challenges as the film began to take shape? Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, I mean, it's the old cliche, which is that the final uh, shooting script is is a you know when you're done editing, and 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 that's never more true than uh, this situation. That's always a really exciting and a and a terrifying and horrifying process. To have. But yeah, I mean, the, the film, you know, the film deals a lot with sound, you know, and that was one of the advantages of being there. And Mona and I have very very similar sort of um, I think sympathies towards sound and and think about it similarly so one of the things that we did there you know um unless it was windy off the north sea or unless the birds were particularly active is we ended up shooting a lot of foley up there you know mona brought a, a, a boom a mic and a recording outfit and we we would we worked on sound a great deal um and that that was that was kind of spectacular and and really deeply fun to do it's fun to 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 figure out the sound of a film um and then we would we would have back and forth with Stephen Griffiths, who was our wonderful sound designer in, in London, and kind of send stuff, you know, back and forth, you know, and say, well, where did you get that, and how did you make that? And you know, I had conversations with uh, my old friend John Resch, who's one of the great Foley artists, who uh, lives up in Northern California, works for George Lucas, and he would 
say, you know, he'd give us tips. Why don't you, why don't you guys try this? Why don't you try that kind of thing? So we kind of, you know, we got to kind of roll up our sleeves and, and, and really, um, and really play, you know, it was a very primitive sort of, um, environment to work in, but, uh, but a very rich one. And how does the creation of the score work with all that? And, you know, talk a little bit about your collaboration with Hilder and how early you brought the composer on. I mean, was that something that was happening even before shooting? And obviously it seems like with a movie like this, you would have to be having those conversations pretty early. Yeah. These were all early conversations. I was so lucky, you know, so lucky with, with, with Florian and, and Bina and, and Mona. Um, that's what, that's what, people call Monica Mona, you know, and, and Hilder, which is that these conversations started early and there was a sense of continuity well before uh, pre-production began all the way through post. So uh, with Hilder, yeah, I mean, I came back, uh, you know, I one of the things that I had agreed with the studio was that I would only uh, collaborate with people that were, you know, in Germany or, or German adjacent. And lo and behold, you know, um, Hilder lives in Berlin and she agreed to do this, which was extraordinary. You know, she was probably the first person that I met with once I actually got my feet on the ground in Berlin. One of the first things she said was, well, let's spot the film. And I said, well, but we haven't made it yet. She said, no, let's spot the film. Let's go through the script. You know, let's make some decisions. Let's hang a lantern. You know, they don't have to be right. Let's just go through it. So, so we did, we spent several days spotting the film together. And then she asked me a question that was so smart, which was, she said, how does she move? And I said, what, what do you mean? She said, well, what, what's her tempo? Like if you had a piece of music, what would it, what would she move to? You know, and there was this piece of Henrik Gurecki that I'd been listening to for many, many years that I played for her as a string quartet. And she said, okay, well, that's 120 beats per minute. So she moves at 120 beats per minute. So let, let's, let's write some music for her that we can put into her ear. Now, what about this character? What about that character? So we got very, very macro in terms of just how, how, we, how the movie was going to be shot. You know, so we were like pre-scoring the actual um, score of physical actions for, for, for people, for things you would never hear. You know, um, and she was scoring those things for real with the London Contemporary Orchestra. She brought in players and things like that. So in terms of the, the rest of uh, what the score was going to be, the proper score anyway, it was fairly clear that you were going to make, you know, close to 30 minutes of music, people making music on screen and that to underscore their, their these characters' lives would be absurd, you know, be ridiculous. What was going to be the sonic, you know, landscape for that? What were the rules behind the sonic landscape of that? And um, how important it would be not to get caught, you know? Um, what does that, where, where does that, where does that view change and why does it change? And are we ever allowed to, to feel that, you know? Um, so it was conversations like that. Now she works at a, you know, very often, and she's known for working at a very, very um, intensely dense sonic level. And to be even to be privy to how she how she constructs her her pieces in any way is uh, is a huge opportunity uh, it, because she's it, it, there's so much surgical precision to to what she does and how she goes about her her work that it's 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 mind blowing. And so yeah, so we that started end of June or beginning of July of 2021. And, and we worked, you know, uh, we had the continuity of continuing that conversation all the way up truly until the beginning of the, the following July, because one of the things that, that Hilder said it back then was, 
you know, she's working on this, these sets of albums for Deutsche Grammophon. Wouldn't it be great if we did a concept album for her, for Deutsche Grammophon, where she actually ends up getting the cover that she wants? And I said, well, yeah, that would be great. But, you know, Deutsche Grammophon's never going to do that. And she said, no, maybe I think they'll do it. I think they would do it, you know? And so she was right, you know, through, through, through Hilder's encouragement and through, um, Mike Noblock and Natalie Hayden at Universal Music Group and, and, and Deutsche Grammophon, you know, the following July there we are at Abbey Road and we're recording with the London Symphony Orchestra with Sophie Cower, you know, playing Elgar excerpts and the London Contemporary Orchestra playing all these pieces of music that sort of came out of this process with Hilder. So it was a very, very rich experience and um, I, I feel enormous amount of gratitude and, and very, very lucky to, to have had that collaboration with her. Well, I guess to wrap things up, I'm just curious, you know, earlier you mentioned, I don't, you were talking and you mentioned Eastern European cinema and it just made me think that, you know, one of the things I loved about this movie is it's one of the rare occasions I've had in a movie theater recently where I watched something that didn't really feel like anything else. And I'm curious for you, did you have any other influences or cinematic reference points that you were using as models or as things to build off of? Or was this just more purely a, an act of, I don't know, imagination and intuition? Well, I don't, I think we're all the sum of our parts or, you know, um, I've certainly, you know, there's a common language, I think that we all have, you know, in terms of what we've been exposed to and things like that. But, you know, I think that the my fear is always about pointing, you know. Um, I think that I was the only American on the production other other than um, my apprentice editor, um, uh, but he lives in Berlin. Uh, but I was the only true sort of ugly American. And, and I had this, I tried to respond to, to the spaces and the, and the places that felt like the, where these characters belonged, you know. The main thing wasn't, it wasn't, it was less about just making decisions than, than what not to do. Uh, I must never show the radio tower in Berlin, you know. I must never show, um, you know, the Brandenburg Gate, you know. I, I didn't, I just, it's a very interior film, you know. It's a very hermetic film. And oftentimes when you make a film, and I've been in films like this as an actor, they can feel very cheap if you don't let people get outside once in a while, you know. So that that was a, that was something that I, I tried to, try to just take us outside to breathe every once in a while, but it's a fairly um, constructed world, you know? I know that doesn't probably answer the, the question you're asking, but um, but no, not consciously, I don't think. Great. Well, it's, uh, it's a terrific movie, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. I appreciate, appreciate your time, Jim. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. 